Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to Iconocast. I'm Mike Hobrick. And I'm Greg Layden. All right. Thank you, Greg. Um, we're back after a little bit of a hiatus, um, and we've decided that we're going to make some changes to make this show a little bit more interesting. If you saw if you saw the movie Spinal Tap, you know that after Nigel left the band, they had to go to jazz. Well, we're kind of going to jazz now for a little bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to split our shows into two separate shows. So each interview will be in two episodes, like half the episode. But we're going to add a little bit of a wrinkle since Greg is a scientist and I'm kind of science curious. Um, we're going to talk about some strange articles or interesting articles that we found. And Greg can lend his expertise, and I'll ask my civilian-type questions. And then we'll do that in, uh, in two different parts. So the first story that I wanted to talk about, Greg, was there was um, a story where they had done a study on inbreeding in rattlesnakes. And there's eastern Massasauga rattlesnakes in there in Ohio, and they found something kind of interesting. Now, we're used to the idea of inbreeding, multiplying deleterious traits and genes, because you get alleles that are more, more likely to combine. Right. And um, generally, if there's a negative uh, trait that would be recessive, you'll end up with more likelihood of recessive traits coming together and causing things like, well, in the in the royalty in Europe, there was a case where hemophilia uh, was an issue. Right. But that's not exactly what happened with these rattlesnakes. They found that it wasn't quite, uh, didn't quite work that way for these rattlesnakes. Yeah, basically, the I think there's some interesting cultural history background, I think, to this. Back, I think, by the 1960s, it was well-established knowledge that inbreeding was bad. That it would re re reveal deleterious traits, just like you said. Um, and that is certainly true. However, and, and in fact, you, you saw a lot of assumptions since then. You often see, I remember in the late 70s, I think it was, someone noticed that the cheetah population has such low genetic diversity, it was predicted that they would go extinct within a few generations or by 30 years or something, hence. Um, and... It, it, there's an idea in conservation you must keep population levels high mm -hmm. or else you will have problems with extinction uh, and so on. And that's all probably valid to worry about and it's probably partly true, but when you actually see inbreeding genetically in actual populations, you often see less problems than people would have expected. And this even is true in human populations where we have small groups doing a lot of inbreeding, you don't see problems. So. There may have been a significant overestimation of how serious inbreeding is as a problem, but another reason is simply if you have a lot of inbreeding in a population for a few generations, you will have lots of problems, sure. and there's, those problems are effectively weeding out those deleterious alleles. Nice. Imagine that every deleterious allele killed you before you reproduced. Every time they were exposed, they would be gone from the population for, right. in, in that lineage. So it just weeds them out. And I think there's another reason, another factor that might be, matter to snakes. If you're a human, you are taking, or any primate, you're having more or less, for most primates, one offspring at a time, and every offspring matters a lot, okay? Lots of species have surplus offsprings, and I don't mean they have more and they don't survive, oh, that's too bad. I mean, for example, like the bowfin, which is a Minnesota fish, and it's mm -hmm. actually a really interesting fish, it's global around the Palearctic, 
It's a kind of lungfish. And it, that, that female will have hundreds of offspring. And the plan is to consume them over time. And that's her food. So she has, the offspring all stay near her. She protects them all. And she eats them all, except for a few. So the few that are left have benefited from their siblings being eaten. Oh, sure. There's lots of species where you benefit from your siblings dying before you, re- re- you, you reach reproductive maturity. And in that case, who cares if those siblings have deleterious alleles right. that are exposed? So having a bunch of runts in the litter or a bunch of uh, mutants that will not survive doesn't matter if their purpose was not to survive. And I think that's probably, I'm guessing that might apply to snakes because don't snakes have like lots of offspring? Also? Yeah, they do. So I, I suspect that's a factor too. Oh, to guess, but kind of cool. The one thing that I thought maybe might be a case too is that sometimes if you have um, a smaller breeding uh, breeding pool, that perhaps um, if you don't have a lot of outside stuff coming in, then you also may avoid mutations that might have happened in a different right. um, a different gene pool, avoid them coming in and polluting your gene pool. That's a good point. You, you, I, I'm not sure the bath works out, but I, w- I would definitely want to look into that. That, yeah. that you, it, the, the only thing worse than an isolated small population is an isolated small population with invading bad alleles. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty good story. That was kind of interesting. It kind of goes against the common common sense. I think that's when science is good. And we'll put the links to any source material of mm-hmm. what topics we're talking about on the, on the website. Yep. So I, I had picked one out that I just wanted to mention. To you, which is the uh, it's a it's a paper in a peer a peer reviewed journal by John Cook called Cranky Uncle: A Game Building Resilience Against Climate Information. And John is of course famous. He is skepticalscience.com in person, the guy who created that website, skepticalscience.com, yeah. and which is where you go to find out the answers to questions people ask you about climate change. Like it's been it's changed in the past or whatever. And you can go look up those questions on that site to find out what the actual science is behind that issue. Um, but he's been working, he's got a book called Cranky Uncle, and he's, uh, he's, he's been working on resources for people to use to address climate change denial. And this is a paper about an app you can download for your Android or your iPhone. And it, it's, it involves sort of gameplay and quizzes. Mm-hmm. And in doing this gameplay and quizzes, you learn how to recognize fallacies and falsehoods that people who are denying climate science or science in general use. You get better and better at it. So it refines your ability to think critically. And the latest project is to actually have this um, available for people to use in schools. Everybody has an idea why education is not doing it right and how to change education yeah. and how to upgrade. Like we should start teaching critical thinking in schools and stuff like that. What people probably forgot is that we actually do teaching teach critical thinking in schools. It's one of the main things that's done. Mm-hmm. It's just that the students don't remember it when they later become voters. Right. <laughs> right? So that's the problem. No longer do they remember how photosynthesis works. And that wasn't really the point of going to school mm-hmm. anyway. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're an improved person having gone to school. But it's not because you can explain photosynthesis. Or the Krebs cycle. Or the Krebs cycle or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, it still is. this is a tool people can teachers can use. And it's very hard to get teachers to adopt things or to even know that you have something out there because they're impossible. Teachers live in bubbles um, that you can't get into. Because if, if a teacher lets you in their bubble, they're not doing their job because they're too busy doing their job as a teacher. Right. But this is now being used in us, dozens of schools around the country in the U.S. right now. 
which is not saying a lot because there's something like 47,000 school districts in the United States, but it's, it's catching on and it's very good and I recommend people download the app Cranky Uncle. I think one of the things that I thought was pretty cool in there when I was talking about the reason that the um, development that he developed was that we have a couple of different modes of thinking when we're processing either new information or else trying to um, incorporate information into our existing knowledge and there's like the, the quick thinking and then there's right. the slow thinking right. and um, trying to train ourselves to be able to take that slow thinking and bring it into our quick thinking is part of the purpose of the app. So like quick thinking is like your your gut reaction when you hear a new piece of information. It may be correct and it may be incorrect. It's just kind of based on what your perspective will bring about in your experience. But then when you start to think about it a little bit more, um, then you may process it a little bit more deeply, a little bit more differently, and then you'll be able to understand it a little bit more thoroughly and maybe um, take from a different angle and so what they want to be able to do is just to train your brain so that you can do that on a faster basis to recognize fallacies, to recognize um, factual thinking when you hear it and that type of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that people who have followed following the evolution of psychology discussion can relate to this because uh, you have the idea that our, the, I think incorrect idea that our, that our brains have evolved modules genetically determined modules that form in our brain shaped by evolution to solve certain kinds of problems. And I think actually what those, well, I think we have those modules in our brain, but I think that they're learned. And if they're learned, they can be maybe learned in later life, not just when you're a child. Yeah. And, or, they, or, or existing modules in your brain can be tuned up and sharpened and made to work better. So it's a little bit like, I imagine it's a little, it's a little bit like training an athlete, you know. Like, how, how do they do that, where some guy runs away from the scrimmage line and another guy throws a ball, and the guy who's going to catch a ball knows right when to turn around? Like, one out of six times, anyway, mm-hmm. if you're the Vikings. And so, like, that's all built in to them. Right. And it's built into them by constant training. Yeah. So I think this app is, you're right, I think it's a training app. And it's probably a lot easier to learn to do what John's asking us to learn than to be a receiver for the Vikings. <laughs> probably. And less damage to the brain. Yeah. 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 So you had a, another one on another paper? Yeah. And this is bats and fast food. <clears throat> and, and they don't necessarily mean McDonald's when they're talking about bats eating fast food. But what they're talking about is they're talking about uh, nectar um, specialist bats that drive their um, nutrition from nectar in areas um, where the different environments that they have available to them are cultured bananas. Um, and um, and they even made a differential between uh, uh, like a monoculture, I think like a single uh, cultivar uh, type of banana, as opposed to like organically grown bananas. <clears throat> and they discovered that um, the bats that um, were in um, uh, so single culture or single ver- um, a single cultivar banana had a reduced diversity of bacteria or gut bacteria to help them um, to help them digest and so they were not storing the fat inefficiently or I believe but they were they were not they were not as healthy basically they weren't digesting as well um, 
and so they kind of liken that to the fast food uh, that humans get where we have like a, um, a limited diet and um, and it doesn't doesn't give the opportunity for our body to host um, um, multiple different types of bacteria and so it had some interesting effects on there but one of the questions that I had was I didn't understand how they were or why they were like juxtaposing organics versus monoculture I don't I don't know exactly why those particular agriculture conditions are necessarily different they're still the same cultivar of bananas why would organics be healthier with the exception of you know the types of um, pesticides or, or, or fertilizers and then they did a third group they they looked at a third group where their diet was basically just kind of a, a natural diet that the bats would have um, had had there been no banana plantations if they had minded their own business in Central America and um, and those of course they had the largest diverse largest set of diverse um, uh, how would you say that gut bacteria right. yeah flora <laughs> flora gut flora yeah and of course they were much more efficient at um, digesting various types of food right right I think there are a couple interesting things about this article obviously one is the point you made the question you raised which is why is it that monoculture isn't organic if organic is supposed to be not using chemicals and things like that why is that you know why is a monoculture not an organic and I, I think in reality what's happening is there are plantations that are using monoculture the reason to use monoculture of any uh, of, of bananas mm -hmm. or a lot of crops is because you have to produce a product that's going to arrive at a depot with a certain number of pounds per unit item right so that when you go to the grocery store in Plymouth Minnesota where we are right now and you go to the bananas they're all going to be the same banana again and again and again more or less and so that's that that consistency is a really important idea in commercial agriculture it has no value other than as a commercial you know part of the commercial product mm -hmm. but it's what we kind of require we our houses all look the same in the suburbs and our bananas yeah. all look the same in the grocery stores whereas organic hooks to a different set of ideals where that is not important and so organic farms aren't only organic but they're also maybe growing lots of different cultivars for mm -hmm. some reason um, and there are a lot of cultivars of bananas. I have, I am one of the few people you ever meet who's actually grown bananas extensively. Oh, and and plantains, <laughs> and uh, and there's an infinite number of cultivars. I mean, it's like there's this crazy number. Uh, one of the things that it points out here is that the so the wild flora and the diverse plantation are the are similar. They're basically the same, and obviously the bacteria are folk, are specialized by banana. Right. So then you get lots of different bacteria for a bat. If you're in the wild flora or the or the multi cultivar um, plantations, and then that somehow makes the digestion of fats work better. And I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I think it all comes back to that diversity question, which, by the way, applies to yogurt as yeah. well. We've been talking off off uh, off mic about yogurt making lately, and what I learned is that when you buy the yogurt. You buy yogurt to cultivate your yogurt in your yogurt machine. And then you take some yogurt out and use that yogurt to cultivate the next one. And if you do that three or four times, you'll eventually have no yogurt. Because you started with a, with a, with a not a very diverse population of bacteria, and you made it less diverse because extinction is more likely than evolution. Right. 
and so you basically run out of bacteria diversity. Why doesn't the cultivar? Uh, so why doesn't the why doesn't the bacteria from the store have lots of diversity in it? Well, that's because they are controlling it precisely so that every batch, no matter how organic looking this yogurt is, no matter how right. they have pictures of happy cows on it and everything else, it's still <laughs> extremely commercialized. And that yogurt has to be the same for everybody who opens that yogurt. So they have to have specific bacteria that are no different. When they find diversity in their bacteria, they kill it in that factory. Right. Okay. So my, my tip for making yogurt is buy multiple sources of yogurt, mix them together. Because what we now know about bacteria, apparently, is that a community of bacteria will have higher fitness per species and as a community than an individual species because they're doing stuff together that they can't do as independent. Because they're little chemical making machines. They've got chemicals that fight off yeasts mm -hmm. or whatever. And they have, so because the diversity allows them to manage their ecological setting better as a community. So there's a lot of co-evolution going on in there. Okay. And so obviously that's what's happening with the diversity in the plantains or bananas and what's happening with diversity in the, in the, in the bacteria in the gut that allows them to process things. It's with diversity in microbic, microbic flora mm. is the expectation and it's the evolutionary stable state. And lack of diversity is not the evolutionary stable state and right. it's not the expectation. That's why you get lousy results. So lack of diversity can lead to diarrhea. Right. And that's yeah. one reason why someday you're going to go to the grocery store there's going to be no bananas because something wiped them all out because yeah. they don't diver they're not diverse enough. Yeah. Well, then I'll have to start learning how to use plantains. I've never actually cooked with plantains. But well, yeah. you can't eat them raw. You have to no. Them. And the trick is, one trick is to let them ripen yeah. until they look like you have to throw them out. Yeah. Then you cook them. And they're really good. So, Greg, we read this book by Bill Shutt, and this is on our circulatory system, and it's um, about, you know, like the different um, stages of uh, evolutionary development of circulatory systems and hearts. And um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in the interview, but you did get a chance to talk to Bill. Um, and before we get into this interview, are there some things that we should um, listen for that you and Bill talked about? I think that it, for me, as someone who teaches occasionally teaches anatomy, I learned uh, new ways to explain anatomy that were interesting. I think that Bill does a great job in his book, as any good science book of this scope would, uh, of of explaining things in a way that is memorable and relatable to other things. But there's a second aspect of this book that is very rarely found in a science book of this type. And that is, most science books about a topic will have a few paragraphs or maybe even a chapter in the beginning about the history of science, like how Aristotle was wrong and mm. Galileo said this and blah, blah, blah. What Bill does is he doesn't do any of that in the beginning. And then he goes right, he goes two-thirds or half, a little more than halfway through the book, I guess it is. That's when he looks at the history of the ideas. And the history of the ideas about the human body, mainly talking about the heart, mm -hmm. are fascinating and I personally had a question that I never understood about why is it that medicine has evolved in the way it has evolved. And his book perfectly explains it. And it's, it's kind of a startling finding, and it's near the end of the interview, and I strongly recommend you listen through and hear about it. It's kind of revealing about the nature of humans and the nature of science. Well, excellent. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, it's, um, it's a humorous book. Uh, he's very dry wit. 
Yes, we're drawing yeah. with an interesting perspective. Yeah. The, 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 pers the person speaking is just a person, but the audience is not a human being. Exactly. The audience mm -hmm. is whatever form of life happens to come along to read this book. Yeah. I think that's kind of a cute way of doing <laughs> you're it. You're a blue crab. If you know. you're a blue crab, you might have disagreed with this point I just made. But, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I um, hope you enjoy listening to this. We're gonna, like I said, we'll split it into two parts and um, release those separately. So if it seems like it uh, is too short, well, that's on purpose. Except it's going to end up being about an hour each episode, I suspect. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, a little less. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And we're back with a former guest, Bill Schott, who has a book coming out called Pump, which is about the heart. Uh, welcome, Bill. Nice to be here. I'm really glad. Our last interview was on cannibalism. So this is, instead of talking about cannibalism, we're going to be talking about eating your heart out instead of eating everything else. Um, I, I really enjoyed your book. I think it is, I will talk about this a bit later, but I thought it was one of the most interesting things about the book besides the topic is the structure. You really, most books that cover a biological area start off with something about, you know, mention Aristotle or some other ancient scientists and what they did uh, in the beginning and then move on to current things. And what you do in your book is you start with modern knowledge and, and evolutionary history and so on and then take a really deep dive into the history of the, of the medicine itself. And we'll talk about that later, but I think that's really a fascinating way of putting this book together. It's a really interesting topic. Yeah, let, let's start with the basic thing which you start with, I think, and that is the question, why are there hearts? If you're really, really small, you don't need a heart. You don't need a circulatory system. And, and, and the reason that you do need it is because you need to transport oxygen and carbon dioxide that builds up um, and, uh, and, and then waste products and, and nutrients. You got to move those around the body, especially if it's a body that's got some size to it. We're talking like thousands, millions of cells. If you're really, really tiny, you don't need that because it, you, know, you get your requirements from the environment that you're in. There's more oxygen outside in the water that you're swimming around in. So that oxygen just moves across your cell membrane into your little body. Uh, and, and, and by the same token, the carbon dioxide that's produced moves in the opposite direction. It moves out. Uh, but when you're larger, that doesn't work. And that, that, that process is called diffusion. And, and it, it's, it's not anywhere near as efficient if you're talking about layers and layers and layers of, of cells and tissues. So in order for creatures to evolve into any type of a size, a, a transport mechanism had to evolve to move that material around. And, and so uh, in, in various animals without backbones, I think this evolved many times. And so you have this muscular pump. You, know, you can think of it as simple as, uh, as envision that you've got a water balloon. And, and, and when you wrap your hand around it and, and squeeze it, your fingers and your hand, those are the muscles that make up this, uh, this pump. And as you squeeze it, the water is moved because of that increase in pressure. That's kind of how these things work on a simple level. Uh, and then the, the, the arteries and veins are just this, the, the, the conduits by which this liquid can move around the body, carrying with it uh, oxygen and, and, and carbon dioxide and nutrients and, and waste. And, um, you know, that certainly when you get to the vertebrates, you can trip, whether you're looking at fish or amphibians or reptiles or, or mammals and birds, there, there's a similarity because we believe that they all evolved from a, from, from a single uh, creature. Uh, so, so the uh, sort of a common 
common ancestor of all the vertebrates. You don't see that with, with the backbone less animals because they, uh, this has probably evolved many times. So you see a, a real variety in, 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 uh, in those types of, of systems. I like to dive into that a bit more, but first talking about size a little bit more. You start your book with a story about, about visiting in the Royal Ontario Museum, a, a prepared specimen taken from a blue whale. And that's the largest animal and it's the largest heart. Uh, is that the largest heart you can get? Do you think, and, and, and also, is, that, is the largest heart in a mammal limited because of what you just said, that there's a common ancestor that was not giant, um, but would have put constraints on how big that heart can be? Because you do talk about adaptations that the blue whale ha heart has to be able to be so large. So is that, is that the upper limit? And is that therefore a limit, the upper limit size of uh, how big animals can be? Uh, interesting question about, about limits and upper limits. And, um, and just to back up a, a little bit, th these friends of mine that are curators at the Royal Ontario Museum came up upon this kind of unique experience in 2014. And nine blue whales had washed up and, and had, excuse me, had died on the ice. And, and, and for the longest time, we didn't know a lot about blue whale biology because when these animals die, they sink. In days of, uh, of whalers, these were not the right whales, but th those are the ones if you threw a harpoon in them, they floated after they died, these sank. So they got this unique opportunity because three of the whales didn't sink and two of them washed up on these, in these small towns uh, in Newfoundland. And they sent up a crew, they decided, well, well you know, we've been asked for so long, What's the largest heart? Uh, blue whale heart. How big is it? Uh, it's the size of a sedan. But they really didn't know. When they, once they got this opportunity, that they, they went up there with a with a large crew with all sorts of construction equipment to move these things around. And so we're talking about like four guys inside this thing pushing the heart out between ribs. And and when they got it out, it, when I look at pictures of it, it doesn't look like a mammal heart. It looks like a you know a four hundred pound soup dumpling. It, it just collapsed into like a you know this kind of mess. And and we think that now that that you know now five years later after they they spend all of that time preserving this thing and it's incredible and it's also uh, there on display at the ROM right now. But we think what was going on there is that these animals undergo tremendous pressures when they dive and and that instead of undergoing this massive amount of pressure from, from a deep dive, the, the heart simply collapses because it's only beating two or three times a minute. So yeah, it's the largest heart in the world. The, the thing is, it was a lot smaller than, than they thought it was going to be. So instead of having a, a sedan next to it, they had a little mini car. Uh, <laughs> but, if, but if you had a 90-ton hummingbird laying next to this thing, uh, it would have a heart that was eight times the size. And, and that to me and, and to these folks, that's what's interesting. And, and the reason we believe is because hummingbirds beat their wings 80 times per second. And, and in order to supply the, those wing muscles, their heart rate can get up to 1260 beats per minute. Now that's probably an upper limit for how fast a heart can pump. If you think of it as sort of a machine, it, it can't pump any faster than that. So the only other way to get more blood to these uh, muscles is to have a larger heart. So relatively speaking, what's taking place here is that a hummingbird heart is eight times the size of a blue whale heart. And, uh, and that there were all sorts of other neat things that they found out about, about this heart that, because they'd never seen them before. But as far as upper limit, uh, I mean, I don't know of any other creatures that have a heart that large. But when you go into the sort of interesting aspects of relative size, uh, then, then, it's, then it's actually quite a small heart. 
probably because it beats the requirements or that it beats maybe 10, 15 times a minute. So anything that has a higher metabolic rate is going to have a relatively larger heart than a blue whale. Yeah. And this is interesting to me because I've always found allometry interesting. The basic principle that when one measurement in an organism gets bigger, let's say the other measurement you'd expect also to get bigger in real life, they don't always correlate in a one-to-one scale. Sometimes yeah. because one measurement is linear, the other one is volume, and they obviously yeah. don't scale. But yeah. this is different. You're talking about a limitation. You're talking about small animals needing more, more having more metabolic demand. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they need more blood, but there's a limit on how fast the hearts can be. So that makes them have to be larger hearts. Absolutely. Uh, neat point about allometry. I mean, this is really the reason why you're never going to see Mothra. That, that creature could not exist. Right because that's something that the the size of a Zeppelin, a moth the size of a Zeppelin is not going to be able to supply tissues with oxygen using the methods that insects have. I don't think you'd mention this in your book anywhere, but this reminds me of a question. Think people claim that body size of insects and maybe some other organisms is an argument for differences in oxygen quantity Mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. There's independent evidence talking about oxygen Mm -hmm. in the atmosphere, but it's all very uh, shaky, I think. Yeah. I mean, we'd always heard, I'd always heard this story about, you see fossilized uh, um, uh, dragonflies and they've got like a two and a half foot wingspan. And why don't you see those today? And, and the, the hypothesis that I'd heard of heard was that um, that's because back in the Carboniferous period, there was more oxygen in the atmosphere because all of these like swamps and, uh, and, and forests. So the, the O2, um, concentration in the atmosphere was higher and it could support a larger insect. And when oxygen concentrations went down in more modern times, it couldn't support an insect that was that large. Now, whether that's true or not, I mean, I'm not certain. Yeah. And the other, the alternative theory to that, which relates back to the heart in a way is that other things that size took those niches over. Mm. Um, which brings us to another interesting question but, uh, be, about, we're going to come back to this in a second. I want to ask you something about protochordates in a minute. But first, let's talk about size, continue to talk about size again, and, w- and look at the smaller size. I mean, I was literally the other day reading your book on my computer screen, and this very small fly came along and landed on the computer screen. And this fly was uh, a few millimeters long. It, if it was a mammal, <laughs> it would have had a, a heart like mine that's probably not possible in something that big. Since it was an insect, uh, it obviously gets its gases and liquids dealt with a different way. But I always think it's amazing to think about the fact that an insect that's only small enough that you have to get right up to it to see even what it is, has basically the same body parts as a horse. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is an invertebrate. So that pump that you're looking at is a whole, I mean, if you were to show that, uh, that, that, that dorsal vessel, uh, that's a contractile vessel. It pumps, uh, it pumps hemolymph, which is the, the insect equivalent of blood around that body. If you were to show that to a, a cardiac surgeon, he would laugh at you if you called it a heart because it doesn't have the, isn't, you know, that's not a card carrying heart. It doesn't have this lining that a heart usually has. So they do have, you know, all of these things to me are interesting because they work really well. And, you know, we have this tendency to look at something like an insect heart and, and poo-poo it. You know, here's this like defective primitive structure. In reality, this thing has been evolving for millions and millions of years, and it works perfectly well uh, for the job that it evolved to do. I also, by the way, looked up, I wanted to find out what is the smallest insect 
it is in the genus Dicopomorpha, and it's a half a millimeter in size, which is smaller than a large amoeba. It was only known to exist in this one town, I think in Illinois, where it was found as a parasitic, as something that it never leaves the ovum processing area of some other organism, like another insect, I think. Yikes. Uh, it just stays in there, never leaves. So it doesn't, it, 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 so it's basically convergent on, a, on an endoparasite. Huh. But it's no, an insect. That's- that's that's kind of cool. I always love convergent evolution. That, that's been something that I've gone back to time and time again, where you have these, you know, you have the shape of a shark and you have the shape of a dolphin. Why did they look like that? They didn't get that shape from a common ancestor. They got that shape because that's the that's the shape that works really well if you're going to be a, a, a fast aquatic predator. Right. And that brings me to the question I was dancing around before, which is uh, you, you mentioned a particular aquatic organism that is a protochordate. Hmm. meaning it represents, it's a living thing that roughly represents the common ancestor of the chordates, which is things with vertebrates and vertebrae like we are, and the things that aren't chordates. And it has a very important feature to its circulatory system that is incredibly important to understand the evolution. Do you want to talk about that organism for a second? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the cool thing about the, those is that when they are, when they're in a, an adult form, they look like a little jelly blob. And they are, they're sitting on a, uh, underneath a pier or something like that. But when they are, their embryonic form, um, they are mobile and they, they've got a little tail and they swim around. They look very much like little tadpoles. When they were first discovered, scientists thought it was a completely different species. They, they didn't sort of tie it to this little blob adult form uh, called a sea squirt commonly. Um, but they do have hearts. They do have a structure that is a pump that pumps um, that pumps blood around the body. And so I'm, I'm glad you said that it's sort of a, I, I can't remember the exact term you use, that this is sort of an estimate of what it would have looked like the first, um, the first chordate, because it's certainly, you know, I don't think we can trace our ancestry back to sea squirts, but, but scientists believe that this is sort of what they were doing. And, and this is sort of what the creature was like uh, that initially, it, just in its larval form, might have had these characteristics that we come along millions of years later, look at it and go, oh, that's a chordate. Look at it. It has a, you know, it's got a, a dorsal nerve cord and it's got uh, gill slits and it's got, uh, you know, it's got this circulatory system. Uh, so, so I did find that, that interesting, but, it, but it's really important to let people know that we don't believe that, uh, that, that chordates and then the vertebrates who belong to the, uh, to the chordates uh, evolved from a, from a sea squirt, but it's a neat model to show how we think they evolved. Right. And to me, an interesting feature here is that I think it was Darwin actually that pointed out if you let if you've got a collection of of predators from Eurasia and just put them in Australia, the marsupials of Australia would be extinct shortly. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the relative fitness in a sense of large classes of organisms. And I always wonder, you know, if imagine that you had a a protochordate species, a set of species, and some of them included the one that would become the chordates eventually, and the other ones didn't. Any one of those lineages, uh, evolution isn't predictable, yet it is predictable in a sense. So there are certain things that tend to happen in evolution. And it's, it's possible to imagine that any given protochordate species might have evolved a backbone, give something roughly like that in the future. But it's the one that does that, that gets to have the backbone. And the other ones could be excluded through, due to competitive exclusion. Right. 
Yes, yeah. that's really tricky. That, that's not how evolution has to work, but it actually is how it often works, which means that we are stuck. Uh, you teach anatomy, right? I teach anatomy. We're trying to find examples of interesting evolutionary things in our anatomy classes, but the really good examples of ancient, ancient changes have may not exist in many cases because the living species that we can actually buy a, a sample of and use it in a lab um, have had such a different evolutionary history because of existing lineages that the similarities are essentially, and, and random chance, probably even a bigger factor, are wiped out. So that protochordate, you just can't have one. <laughs> you can't have yeah. a okay. lab specimen of a protochordate that really represents what an actual protochordate would have been. Exactly. Today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you try to tell people that, uh, so, so we lost our, our, our notochord, right, which is characteristic of chordates. And because we had this other structure that evolved, the vertebral column, and the only evidence that you can see of the notochord is um, in intervertebral discs. If you open them up, that jelly inside there, which is called the nucleus pulposus, that's the remnant of the, of the notochord. And you're like, what, really? I mean, it doesn't look like a notochord. So, so it's, it's difficult to sort of get those types of... Um, uh, of, of, of things across to people who, you know, especially who are non-scientist types. So that's why I spend a lot of time just cutting out a lot of jargon and, and trying to, um, to, to get that type of, of, um, of message across in a way that you might repeat at the dinner table because it's a neat story. It's got some humor in it. It's entertaining. And that's what I like about your book. It, it, you do a great job of that. And it isn't just a dinner table. Um, it's actually in the anatomy class. I mean, I think that I, I, I um, my wife and I teach an anatomy class for uh, sort of high functioning middle school students. And your book is full. I'm going to change a lot of what we do because your book is full of great examples and, and ways, ways to explain things that work that way. It, it's also a nice little sub story here might be that uh, one of our best living examples of early chordates that we would use, of course, is a hagfish. Yeah. And whales are what they eat when they're dead. So yeah. I'm just thinking about the blue whales that sank to the bottom were probably full of hagfish. Oh yeah. Actually. So this story kind of all comes back into one great circle of life thing. Yeah. I never thought of it like that. I was too busy being snarky about how to catch them. If you want to catch a hagfish, which, which right. probably has the lowest blood pressure of any, of any, um, um, chordate, something it like okay. you know, six, yeah. six to eight millimeters of mercury, uh, as opposed to what something a whole lot heavier and, uh, higher in, in, in something like a giraffe. Do you want to summarize for us what you think is important about it? I, I, I like your horseshoe. You had a horseshoe crab story. And the first thing that attracted me to that interesting story is that you talk about Monument Beach. And I, I grew up in upstate New York. We used to go to Cape Cod a lot. And then I actually lived on Cape Cod two summers. So I know Monument Beach really well. When I was a kid, we used to go to Skakit Beach more often at night to see the horseshoe crabs. It's a very, very, it's a kind of beach where I don't know, as a little kid, you see it as miles, but it was really hundreds of feet of tide. It's like this, it's got the shallowest sand deposit on the Cape. So you, the, it's just a huge area full of horseshoe crabs when they're, when they're doing their mating thing. But what, where, how do horseshoe crabs fit into the way that you help people understand circulatory systems? Yeah, initially I, I looked at horseshoe crabs because I wanted an example of a, of a heart that was not a myogenic heart, like our heart is a myogenic heart. What's that mean? That means that the, that the, the stimulus 
to cause it to contract is an electrical signal that comes from within the heart itself. And of course, that's our pacemakers. And so I had this idea that, you know, I would explain, this is why you don't see uh, in movies where Aztec priests are at the top of this pyramid and they're holding up a horseshoe crab heart uh, out to the crowd, because as soon as you remove a horseshoe crab heart from the, from the horseshoe crab's body, it would stop beating. That's because there were the, there were, this is a heart that beats because of nerves that come into it. So if you sever those neural connections, this, the heart stops immediately. But then I got way beyond that when I found that, that since the 1960s, these animals, and, and these are true living fossils. We right. throw that term around. These are creatures that a half a billion years ago looked just like a horseshoe crab does today. So to put that in the perspective, that, you know, that's 250 million years before the first dinosaur horseshoe crab was doing its horseshoe crab thing. Um, and they were, you know, when man came along, you know, especially in, in, in North America, a lot of these got wiped out because they were used as fertilizer. And when they found better fertilizer, they found another use for them. And that was eel and whelk fishermen would chop them up for bait. And so large numbers of these things were killed and they're very slow growing. They, they don't reproduce till they're about 10 years old. 1960s comes along and this researcher discovers that there's a substance in horseshoe crab blood, which is blue for reasons we can talk about later, if you like. Uh, it, there's a substance in this blood, if you isolate it and then put it into contact with endotoxin. And endotoxins, that in itself is a story. I, I, I thought, well, endotoxins must be released by bacteria to sort of harm you. And, and in reality, they're not. Endotoxins are chemicals that make up the, the outer cell membrane of a number of different bacteria called gram-negative bacteria. And it's not like they're releasing this stuff. If you're in a condition where these bacteria exist, let's say a hospital or in the production of uh, catheters or some type of medical equipment. And then you sterilize that environment, that, that hospital room, that, 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 those catheters. You kill that bacteria, literally burst the cell membrane and release these substances. And if they get into your circulatory system, the human circulatory system, that's an endotoxin. That's something that's, you know, that can kill you. So once they determine this, Within, say, 10 years, almost on an industrial scale, you had these companies that would collect horseshoe crabs. And this, unfortunately, is right as they're mating. Uh, and they would bring them in. Uh, you know, I live on the east end of Long Island. I used to always wonder why you saw pickup trucks full of horseshoe crabs in the, in the, in the spring, early summer. Uh, no water, no, no cooling conditions. And they were bringing these things to facilities that would hang them upside down, stick a cannula in their heart, drain their blood until it stopped. And then by law, they had to return these horseshoe crabs to, 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 to where they found them. Meanwhile, you've taken 40% of their blood out. You've stored them with no water and not in, in, in hot conditions. And many of them died. So, so, so now you have the serious problems with populations of, of horseshoe crabs declining because of, you know, of course it's, it's great that we're saving, saving human lives by being able to detect endotoxin, but more recently, you know, they figured out ways to, they figured out a test to, to, to detect endotoxin without using horseshoe crab blood. Unfortunately, COVID came along. And so there was more of a reliance on the old system, the old tests, because it was available from more from different companies, you know. But there's a there's a hope that when COVID uh, finally dies down, if it ever does, uh, that we'll be able to go back and use these new tests to spare horseshoe crabs from from going extinct, which is a distinct possibility. Something else occurs to me listening to this. My wife teaches a, a, 
uh, a class at the high school where students are hooked up with scientists to do research. And so they also bring in scientists to give talks. And one of the people who come in, comes in every year and gives a talk is a woman who is a leader. I don't remember her name, but she's a physician who's a leader in in vitro fertilization. It's the lab here at the University of Minnesota that apparently figured out how to make major changes. They have they they are able to get in vitro fertilization to work better than anyone else because of they, some of the things they did. And one thing they did was they realized that by sterilizing everything, they were killing the fertilized eggs or the embryos. I wonder if it's a, if it's the endotoxin that itself that was doing that. They stopped sterilizing. They they still clean everything, but they don't sterilizing it using the chemicals they were using before. So everything's clean, and now all the embryos have a better chance of surviving. Or I don't know if it's fertilized eggs that are being dying off or embryos, whatever. Um, I wonder if the endotoxin is part of that story. Just guessing here. You had mentioned you know, talking about horseshoe crab blood, I guess I don't also want to, I, I, I don't want to miss the fact, the interesting fact that insects don't use their circulatory system in the same way that say humans do. Well, as you mentioned, there's, there's insects have come up with everything, including things that are a little bit more like mammalian circulatory features than uh, you might expect, but um, they're using their respiratory system and they're dealing with gases, CO2 and oxygen and nutrients are done in different ways. Well, I mean, they have something called the tracheal system where the air, just, so, so rather than lungs or, or, or gills uh, picking up oxygen from, from either the air or, or, or water, uh, their, their oxygen in, in the form of atmospheric uh, you know, air enters through these little tiny holes on the side of their body. And then the, those, they enter into tubes that just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they deliver by diffusion oxygen to the cells of, uh, of, of the body. And by the same token, they take away carbon dioxide that builds up. When you are converting nutrients in, into chemical energy, you re- one of the things that happens is you release carbon dioxide and, and that's how you, they get rid of it the same way. That's why I mentioned, you know, you'll never see Mothra um, Zeppelin-sized uh, moth, because that tracheal system works great if you're small, but it doesn't work great if you have any kind of size. Yeah. Another great connection that I liked in your book was the relationship between woodland frogs and the high frequency with which people, the elevated frequency with, with which people um, die of heart attacks shoveling snow. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's one that uh, that's come up a lot of times now in, uh, and I'm glad it has, you know, I, I'm not a physician and, but I did try to put in some hints about what to do and, and what not to do. So if I, I, I can approach that first, yeah. the, 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 the snow shovel, shoveling bit, you know, we live in, in a place where there's, there's a lot of snow and you know, my driveway has two tons of snow on it when I wake up in the morning. Uh, and the first thing that I want to do is, uh, is, is have a good meal first before I go out there. This is a mistake. Uh, and that's because if I, um, if I have a big meal, then, then the, the, you, you know, we have this autonomic nervous system. It basically runs the things that we don't have conscious control over so that you've got the fight or flight side of it that, that speeds up your heart rate, raises your blood pressure, it increases your respiratory rate because there's this sort of uh, uh, either a, uh, there's some type of a threat, whether it's real or, imag- or imagined. On the other side, you've got the parasympathetic division, which is rest and repose. This is called the digest your Cheerios side of the nervous the system, which, which then sends, uh, stimulates muscles in, in your digestive tract to sort of, um, and, and sends blood to your digestive tract. 
so that you can do things that are not, um, you know, where you're not in, uh, in, a, in a trauma or a crisis situation. So if you're sitting down to breakfast, you have a big breakfast um, and, and after you eat it, now your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and, 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 and is sending blood to your digestive tract for just the reasons I mentioned, to digest, help you digest and circulate the nutrients that are absorbed through your digestive system. Now, that blood is now not being sent elsewhere to places like the heart. So for example, your coronary arteries that supply your heart. So now you're gonna go outside and, 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 stress, and, and, and stress your heart by exercising a lot, by lifting up all of this, this snow, and that can put you into a real problem situation. You know, if you, if, especially if you have a heart that has some problems uh, beforehand, um, but, but the things that you don't want to do would be eat a big meal beforehand, uh, drink alcohol, because that causes blood vessels to constrict, to cut off blood flow, um, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, large amounts of, uh, of caffeine do the same thing. So you got to be careful when you go out there um, to... Uh, to shovel and I, I, I just advise people just you know get hire a kid to do it or, or yeah, I, I made careful. a list but you have a list in your book and I made a slightly different version of the list I have nine things you rules to follow when you shovel your driveway first exercise regularly and quit smoking <laughs> two supplement with vitamin d you mentioned that you don't want to have a vitamin d deficiency because that is thought to lower uh, blood LDL cholesterol levels, so you're at, therefore, a higher risk of having a bad cholesterol problem. You're in Long Island, okay? In Minnesota, right. I went to get a regular checkup a while back, and my doctor said, you have a vitamin D deficiency. And I said, mm -hmm. how do you know? He said, this is Minnesota, and you're a man. All men in Minnesota have vitamin D deficiencies in the spring. <laughs> yeah, this has to be a lack of, um, of, um, of sunlight. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and he was right. Anyway, so don't eat an hour before you go into the pool. I mean, into the driveway. Is that yeah. related? Also, you know, there's this group. I, I think that they re retracted the idea that you shouldn't swim right after eating. Is there a connection between the, that idea and what you're I, saying about? Our that's funny because I mean, all of us of a certain age have heard that you're no, you can't go in the pool until on, for an hour because you're going to get a cramp. And, right. and I, I don't, I don't know if that's the, I mean, it sort of makes sense now if you're digesting your food, um, then you're not sending that blood to your limb muscles, which you'd be using if you were swimming. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it, it, it sort of intuitively makes sense that there might be a connection. Yeah. Well, you should take a nap after you eat anyway, just for, you know. Um, and then no alcoholic beverages, because that exacerbates what you're talking about. Right. Uh, don't have a drink. Don't have a nice breakfast followed by a martini. Um, also, I was wondering, dress warmly so your body doesn't think it's cold out. Because of, yeah, I mean, it, it, it all has to do with where your blood gets sent. And right. so, uh, I mean, if, if, look at what happens to the parts of your body that are, that are sort of projecting out, like your fingers or, or in your nose. They're, they are what get cold first because the blood is going to be sort of not supplied to those structures. It's going to be diverted to areas that are, uh, that are in the core to, to sort of keep you alive in these, in these conditions. That, you know, your, your autonomic nervous system doesn't know that you're not dying when you go out there. It's just trying to save you by rerouting some blood to places that it considers to be more important than your nose. Yeah, and we are uh, we did evolve ultimately in a relatively tropical. Jess, but I'm adding it in. Don't shovel cosmetically. Just mm -hmm. shovel what you need to shovel. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, and then you you mentioned push rather than lift when possible. 
And then the final one is keep several $5 bills in your pocket in case some kid walks by. <laughs> you can just have them do it. So with that great advice, what we'll do is we'll cut this interview at this spot. And then we're going to give you a second part in about a week or so. The name of the book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. And you've been listening to Iconocast with Greg Layden and Mike Hopric.